But who is this James? We know that John the Apostle, who was one of the twelve, had a brother named James. He had a brother named James, you know. Is it that James? No, it's not that James, because that James, when we get to um, Acts chapter 12, verse 2, that James was beheaded by Herod, Herod in, in, with the sword. He was beheaded, so he's not talking about that James. So it's not James, the son of Zebedee. So we know we got that straight. It's not that James, because that James is, that James is gone. There was other men named James. You know, there's other men in the Bible named James. When you go through, like, different parts of the list of the apostles, when it says James, the son of Alphaeus, his name was James. Um, there was a James who was the father of Judas, the one that wasn't Iscariot. His name was James, and he was the father of one of the other apostles named Judas. So it's four James we know of. So who in the world is this James? This James is a different James. This James is the James who was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the James who grew up in the same house with Jesus. So Jesus, the oldest son, Mary, his mother, his father was God. James, Mary was his mother. His father was Joseph, earthly father. Makes him half-brothers. So this James here is the Lord's half-brother. And the reason why this means so much, and it has a place in my heart particularly, because this man knew the Lord in a whole different way than any writer in the New Testament, apart from his brother Jude, who writes the book of Jude. But he would have known Jesus from a different light. He would have known him in a sense when, you know, he was 11. He knew Jesus when he was 11. He knew Jesus when he was 8. He knew Jesus when Jesus was 15. You know, we don't know much about Jesus. We know that around at one point in his childhood that he was in the temple, and Luke tells us that, you know, having a conversation with, you know, the synagogue leaders and so forth, the religious leaders. But for the most part, his childhood is kept silent to us. James would have known all about his childhood. Because Jesus starts his public ministry at 30 years old, James would have known him. But the problem with James, like most of us, you know, you're living in a house and your brother's God and you don't even know it. Imagine trying to play hide and go seek with your brother, you know, and he says, I see you beyond the rock or the mountain, you know, you know, just imagine having a Lord as your brother. And so this James is not the James that was beheaded. In fact, in two places in the New Testament, it mentions Jesus' family. We know he had four brothers and at least two sisters. But as always listed in James in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, you can write it down if you want to, and in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it mentions his siblings. James is always mentioned first. So it tells us this, because the way they wrote scripture, the eldest sibling or child was always mentioned first. So next to Jesus would have been James. So he's always called, he had brother named James, Jose, Judas, and Simon, those were his four brothers, and his sisters. But John tells us something interesting about this James who we're going to meet and we're going to study in the, over the next, you know, several course of several weeks or so. John tells us that, the apostle John tells us that this James was not a believer. 
You know, because in John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, even his brothers did not believe in him. He wasn't a believer. At first, anyway. He wasn't a believer. In fact, when Jesus was on the cross, he told John the Apostle. Now, John the Apostle's mother and Jesus' mother, Mary, were sisters. So John and the other James, the son of Zebedee, who was beheaded by Herod, they were cousins. They were all cousins. But when Jesus was on the cross, Jesus told John, he says, therefore, uh, when Jesus saw the disciple, um, when there, it says, when Jesus therefore saw his mother, rather, and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, speaking of John, he says, behold your mother. And from that, that hour, that disciple took her home to his own house. He takes his aunt home to his own house. He didn't even entrust his own brothers with his mother. So you know that James wasn't a believer. I'm sure after he got saved and so forth, he gave his life to the Lord. He, you know, he finally comes to the Lord. And then, you know, I'm sure he probably got Mary back somehow. But he didn't even trust James with his mother. He, because Jesus is the one who says, who's my mother and my brother? Those who hear my sayings and do them. He says, that's my mother and my brother. And so James wasn't even included. But something happened to James. Something happened to James that happened to all of us who know Jesus Christ. Paul would write and gives us, gives us insight what happens to James when Paul writes, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he arose again on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter, then by the twelve... After that, he was seen by over 500 at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James. That's his brother. Could you imagine seeing your brother who you mocked all your life? Oh, if you're sure, you're sure, you're, yeah, sure, sure you're the Lord, sure you're this. And then your brother comes, hey, James. Resurrected with a nail print still in his hand. And you meet him. You grew up with this guy. You never seen him curse. You never heard him lie. You never seen, he was sinless. You lived with a sinless brother and this risen brother stands before you. He says, and he showed himself and to James. So the lenses he writes from is so different. The lenses he writes from is so different. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 1 in the upper room in verse, you know, 14, you know, it mentions in verse 13 all the apostles and so forth by name. But in verse 14 of Acts chapter 1, it says, These all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They were all there in that upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. Waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. Jude would write a letter and he would say, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. That was Jesus' half-brother Jude. So they realized something, that their lives were transformed by the power of the gospel of Christ. And they were never the same. 
This James is writing. Luke wrote that after James, you know, you know, and so I mean, rather after John's brother James, who was beheaded, this same James comes to prominence in the church. So James becomes the leader in the church in Jerusalem. It's James. You know, Tertullian and some of the church fathers say that James, you know, he would go into the temple for eight to ten hours a day and pray. And, they got, and he got the name called Camelnes. He was called Camelnes, old Camelnes. When he died, they couldn't even bend his knees. He had big calluses on his knees. They said he was stoned, some say about A.D. 62, he was stoned to death. But some of the religious leaders, some said they pushed him off, you know, the pentacle and he fell. They beat him with clubs. He didn't die. Then, then they stoned him. And the Jews was even against him getting stoned. He was called James the Just, James the Righteous. That's what they called him. No razor ever came to his head. He never drank wine. And then he gives his life to the Lord. And his whole life changes. He's overseeing a church in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. He's the leader when they, you know, when Paul and Barnabas, when they go to Jerusalem and so forth, Paul said that, but when I, he said, I saw none, none of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, he says, I only saw James. James was considered one of the apostles. He was considered one of the leaders of the church because the apostles had authority to write scripture. And so this is the James that the Bible is speaking of. Paul said that it was Cephas, James, and John, but he mentions when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand in fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So James was called and he ministered to the Jews. So this letter is written to Jews who are scattered abroad. Because of the persecution. Remember when Stephen got stoned? Stephen gets stoned, the church was scattered. Everybody went everywhere scattered. We would see that as something bad. Oh my God, they stoning us. They beating us with rocks and stone. You know, and run, run for your life. James didn't see it that way. James said, oh my God, look how God is advancing the gospel. Like seed being scattered. Isn't that interesting? So he writes these five chapters. You have five chapters, 108 verses. You have 2,304 words. And James used many commands and imperatives and ver imperative verbs because he's writing from a pastor perspective uh, as an overseer. It's almost like a five-chapter message he's given these believers who are scattered abroad. They're, they're, they're running. They're running for their life. So old Camel, he's this praying man, and he would lay on right the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Because he was a praying man, always on his knees. So he's writing his letter with tears. He's writing his letter with a man, of, a man of prayer, a man of brokenness, a man of knowing and used to being in the presence of his older brother. Bowing and down before his brother, the Lord Jesus, knowing that he's God. He had his God lived in his household with him. So he's writing from something different. Look, the first chapter in James is, look, 
shows us how the mature Christian is patient in trials. That's the first chapter. Not babes. Babes are not patient. When trials come, they fall apart. James is writing that we would be mature, that our faith would be action. I'll show you my faith by, show me your faith, I'll show you your faith by my works too. Chapter 2 is that James says the mature Christian lives the word out in their life. They live it out in their life. Chapter 3, the mature Christians know how to control their tongue. They don't just say anything. They're not flip at the lip. Chapter 4, he goes on to say, mature Christians make peace and not trouble. Immature Christians become troublemakers. Mature Christians don't. They like peace. And he says, chapter 5, the mature Christian is the one who prays. They're the one who prays. This is the James we talk, we're looking at. The one that spoke up during the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. That James, the Lord's brother. You say you got faith? You're going to learn a lot about how faith really works over the next few weeks. And here James says in verse 1, James, a bondservant of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that James does not call himself the Lord's brother here. A bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is karyos in the Greek, which is equivalent to the Hebrew Yahweh, Jehovah, same equivalence. He says that the Lord Jesus Christ, we would have probably, I don't know, I would have been tempted to write something like this. Well, you know who I am really, though. I grew up with Jesus, you know, the, the one I grew up with. The, you know, we would have probably threw something in there on name drop. You know how people name drop. Oh, do you know who I know? Do you know? And James didn't do none of that. Because sometimes people name drop because it seems like if you know a certain person, it may help you be validated. Not necessarily. James didn't do that. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't use this opportunity to brag or boast about his relationship with the Lord. To the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad like the sowing of seed. is diaspora. You know, we get the word sperma, seed. Dire, you know, you know, means to thoroughly scatter. You know, it's like a scattering of seed. Those who were scattered, James saw them scattered all out through the Mediterranean world and the Roman Empire. He saw them scattered through the Roman Empire as God doing something. Now, you might not think that mean a lot, but when you look at Acts chapter 8, and this is that, you know, Saul, who later on would become Paul, made havoc of the church, and the church was scattered, and Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ to them. It's interesting that God used that propelling of a man who was a madman, but he used that for the furtherance of the gospel. So if he scattered the church... You'll go to another city and eventually you start telling people about Jesus. And more people come to Jesus. God is not interested in the seating capacity of a church. Most people worry about the crowds and how many people go to a church. And if there's, he's more interested in the sending capacity. Not interested in the seating capacity. He's interested in the sending capacity. And here they scattered 
abroad, diaspora, is, is often used of the Jewish believers in the New Testament who were scattered abroad, literally throughout this, this huge Roman Empire. You know, in the Septuagint, the word is used in Deuteronomy 28, verse 25, Deuteronomy 30, verse 4, regarding the Israelites being dispersed or scattered among foreign nations, especially of their Babylonian exile. In Jeremiah 41, 11, and in Isaiah 49, 9, is used in that sense in the Septuagint, a scattering. Because even when they were scattered, the, the Jews were scattered. When they end up being everywhere, what happened? They start talking about their God. So these Jews who were once in Jerusalem worshiping the Lord there are scattered only to be brought back one day eventually. But James saw this scattering as a good thing. He says, that, you know, because the proof of your faith is being tested in, in different ways. And look, this this trial that they would have and, and, and all this hardship they would have is a test that God is doing something in your life. How many of y'all wake up in the morning and say, Lord, give me another trial? I don't wake up and saying that. I'm like, Lord, look, whatever you do, I don't want any trials. I don't want any trouble. I don't want any trials. You say you have faith in God? Well, it's going to be tested and faith without works is dead. It's not if you go through something, oh, it's when. And so James says that to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. And then he says, my brethren, 15 times he's going to say this in his letter to the reader. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He said, count it all joy. And he's not saying, go, yeehaw, I'm so glad I'm in, this happened. No, he's not saying that. He's not saying that. He says, count it all joy. When you fall, the word fall basically means to fall around or be totally surrounded by, you know, into various, various means different colors, different types of trials. Some trials can be created by us. We can create trials by, by the choices we make. We can, we can do that. But trials come from without. You know, temptation comes from within. You know, so God allows trials to happen. In fact, he may send some every now and then. Temptation he won't. Because later on in this chapter, James is going to say, let no one say he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So later on, we know that temptation comes from within. Trials come from without. Do you want a trial? I don't want none. But a trial can oftentimes be a mandatory course, not an elective. You know, Paul told the church in Philippi, he says, look, he says, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I don't like that verse too much because I don't like suffering. Nobody here likes suffering. The littlest thing out of place in most believers' life, they just lose it. The small, I, asked, I told my wife the, a week ago, I said, look, I wish we could go through one year without nobody dying or nothing happening. Every year since we've been married, something happened major. Every year. I said, Lord, what is this? 
Then I started reading James. I started reading these things. God allows trials to come to grow us up and to conform us. And he says, count it all joy. Count is almost like an accounting term, reckon or assess. James knew of the joy of God growing us up, and trials are part of that growth. Do you recognize that? That trials are part of your growth. If you grow spiritually, you will have trials. You'll have trials. You say, no, I won't. Oh, yes, you will. If you know Jesus, you will have trials. You will have them. They're going to come. In the trials of life, we should ask the question, Lord, what are you teaching me about you? And what are you teaching me about myself? Not why I don't believe this happened to me. Oh, God. Oh, Lord. I've been faithful and I've been doing everything right. I'm starting to read my Bible more. And then look what happened. Not none of that stuff. You know, we think we should get extra points because we're doing good or something. It don't work that way. You get, you get trials anyway. But I'm good. You're getting a trial. But I didn't do nothing. You're getting a trial. And he says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. Notice it says, count it all joy. And not if, but when. Not if, when. He said, what do you mean when? When. Not if they, they, when they happen. So if you're a Christian and you're thinking, I never had a trial. I never, hold your horses. It's coming. Or you're a new Christian, you'd be like, oh, I just gave my life to Jesus. Oh, I love that church. I love the Bible there, the singing and everything. You got a trial coming too. You got all kinds of stuff coming. When I got saved, Everything happened to me in one week. I mean, all kinds of crazy. My car got stolen. It was all kinds of stuff. This girl lied on me, and it was like almost like she said I was, I don't know, and they had like the Homeland Security at my job looking for me or something. Helicopters and everything. I just got saved. And he will give us these trials. And you might not like them. Count them all joy. What do you mean, count them all joy? I don't want to go through nothing. James said, count it all joy. This is a man who prayed eight to ten hours a day. That was in the presence of his brother, the Lord Jesus. This was a man who had conviction, would be stoned to death. Count it all joy. Because in this world you will have tribulation, Jesus said. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. This is a dirt ball called earth. You will have all kinds of problems here on earth. Disease, you know, pollution and, you know, pestilence and, you know, oh, sickness and sorrow and death on this side. You will have trials. You will have tribulations. And James says, count it all joy. If you're a mature believer, you'll grow up in the trials. You grow right up. The hardest thing for me was to come to church, you know, a few Sundays ago right after my sister died. That was so hard. You know, I was like, Lord, I don't want to go nowhere near nothing. I'm no good for nothing. 
This was a sister, we were like this. Every Saturday, and I'm, I'm ready to pick up the phone yesterday to call. I'm like, she ain't here no more. She's gone. She's in glory, singing with the angels. And she could sing. If she got an upgrade, man, I can't wait to hear when I get to glory. Because she could sing. I said, Lord, why'd you take her, Lord? Why, that's my friend. That's my buddy. That's my girl. I talked to her the day that she died. She's in the hospital. She couldn't even talk. And her husband said, she just want to hear your voice. And she was moaning, and, and I said, she's gone. Home to be with the Lord. And then I had to come here. I said, I love the people here. And I said, Lord, every year you've given me a trial. Every year of my life since I've been a Christian, I have not been trial-free. Every year. My mother died one year. Charlene's parents died three weeks apart. My wife's parents died three weeks apart. My mom died two days after Thanksgiving. Her father died three days before Christmas. And then you come to church, people. They say, oh, oh we're praying for you. And then a week later, I got problems. You know, <laughs> you're all right now. <laughs> Suck it up. <laughs> you know, and, and you're still grieving. I'm still grieving. And it's only a trial. It's only producing something, though. I'm not sorrowing like those who don't have any hope. I just miss my sister. I miss the friendship, the, the wisdom she had, the laughter. But James said, count it all joy. Not her death, the trial. You will go through trials in this world. I've been through a lot of them. I said, Lord, I don't want no more. And no other New Testament writer would have seen this like this. The Holy Spirit picked the right person to write this book. The book of James. James is another name translated from Jacob to James. You know, James. The book of James. And he saw how to live, the Lord lived under pressure. He saw his brother when the Pharisees, you know, was trying to take his life. And he, he saw all these things up close. And, and his brother still stood firm. And he never faltered or vacillated. He stood firm. And so when he's writing about counting all joy, he sees all of these things. He's seen his brother on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, he said the same thing when they stoned them. You know, the same as Stephen said, forgive them for they know not what they do. When they stoned James in AD 72 or AD 64, whenever it was, he said the exact same thing. Forgive them for they know not what they do. So James said. Trials, we should count on our joy because God is going to do something in these trials that's going to grow you up. We don't need immature Christians. We need mature Christians today. We don't need people that's immature. Because the testing of our faith is going to come in this country. It is going to come. We may be scattered abroad. We don't know if we'll be able to come and have church and worship like this. All of this might change. Most countries can't worship like this. We're privileged. 
When the person say they don't want to come to church or they can't come to church or whatever, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Most people would love to come to church that are Christians, but then they can't come to church. Unless they're ready to get their heads cut off or, or, or thrust through with a, with a sword. And these trials, he says, knowing, verse 3, that the testing, proving of your faith, trials test our faith, produces Patience. And the word patience here, it means to be under. Endurance, bearing under pressure. God may allow some trials to hurt us, but he himself will never harm us. That's what A.W. Tozer said. Some things may hurt us, but he'll never harm us. Any of y'all been hurt before? Raise your hand. Raise. You been hurt before? You're still here though, right? So some things are hurt, but he'll never harm us. You know, one version of the Bible says it like this. I love how it puts these two verses together. It says, consider it nothing but joy, brothers and sisters. Whenever you fall to various trials, be assured that the testing of your faith through experience produces endurance, leading to spiritual maturity and inner peace. And whatever's going on around you, you're almost like when Paul says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. Look, when you count your life too dear to yourself, everything moves you. You get offended easy and everything else. You can tell when somebody immature believer, they get offended so easily. They get offended like, like that. They came in and they didn't even speak to me. And I didn't even realize that the person it might not even be thinking about you. You got something else going on in their own life that's, that's trying and hard and difficult. They acting all funny. They sat on the other side. <laughs> immature believers do think like that. Because they're only thinking about what they're getting out of the deal. We don't want to be that, amen? amen. We want to be mature. We want to be mature, that, that the testing of your faith produces something. It produces something that you can bear under the pressure. You can bear under the things that life brings you. You can bear under hurt. You can be hurt and crushed and still know that God is God. You can still realize that he's the Lord and he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And you trust that. In the midst of the trial, you're not looking at the trial more important than God. God is greater than the trial. You're looking to the author and the finisher of your faith. You're not looking at the trial. So most people look at the trial. Look what I'm going through. Oh, my God. This is, oh, Lord. Look at this trial. I'm counting it all joy. No, no. Look at this. What do you mean counting all joy? No, you don't know what's going on. Counting all joy. What do you mean? I'm going through some stuff. Everybody's going through some stuff. You think you're the only one going through some stuff? Everybody in the world is going through something. You either in a trial or coming out of a trial or ready to go back in another one. I just hope minds have a little distance in between, that's all. But they come. And some we say, I can't bear this, I can't bear this. No, you can't bear it alone. And he says, but let patience, in verse 4, have its perfect work. He says, hands off a surrendered will. He says, be still and know that I am God. 
Whatever it is, just say, Lord. Moses, God told Moses in Exodus 14, you know, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That's stop. But be still and know that I'm God from Psalm 46, verse 10. Then hands off. Get your hands out of there where God is doing something sovereign in your life. You got a trial today? I'm not saying go yeehaw. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that God is training you to be something that he wants you to be. He's training you to be something that he wants you to be. He says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This will help us become mature Christians. James is writing with a broken heart, with wet eyes. He's on his knees, old camel. He's, he's praying for these believers. James stayed on his knees in the presence of his older brother. James is broken. James says, no, these trials, they come. They will come. They always come. Everywhere you go, somebody's going through a trial. They are seasons, though. They're only seasons. They only seasons. Whatever you're going through today is only a season. You realize that? Because if you don't realize that, you'll start saying, why? And not say, Lord, you're good, Lord. You are good. You see something in me you want to change, something you're trying to build up in my spiritual DNA that I need. Lord, you are good, and I'm counting it all. It's joy. All of it is joy. You say, oh, you don't understand what I'm going through, Pastor. That's good for you, but you don't understand. No, the Bible is good for everybody if you apply it. Don't have me that it's good for you stuff. I'm here with y'all. Every trial, I'm not sitting around saying, oh, this is really good. <laughs> Look at all the trouble this see. Last year, my son almost got killed. If you seen the car he was in, you say, it was a miracle that he's even alive. A broken femur. After a Monday night Bible study, I get a call at 1 o'clock in the morning. Oh, your son is in the hospital. Terrible car accident. I said, Lord, what did we do to get this? What did we do to get all this stuff all the time? We started ministry. My wife was diagnosed with cancer 15 years ago. I said, what in the world? Why did we get this, Lord? What did we do? We just wanted to serve you. He said, count it all joy. It's a testing of your faith. Do you believe that I'm greater than this and that? I'm greater than those things. And so many people fall apart. Because an immature person will fall apart. And some people try to pretend that they mature but quietly, inwardly, they fall apart. And eventually it comes out somewhere. James is not that. Don't fake like you're mature, because it's going to come out anywhere. He says, with the testing of your faith, I'm going to produce something. And you know what I'm going to produce? Later on, you're going to be like, Lord, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith, not doubting. And he says that for he who doubts is tossed to and from by the wind, for let that man not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Nothing from the Lord. Do you want their trial today? 
You know, I think you should, it's four words you should have as a bumper sticker or in your room somewhere or somewhere in your book or something. Four little words. Count it all joy. Why should we count it all joy? Because God has done something in us. He's doing something in me. He's doing something in you. He begun a good work, will complete it. Even until the day of Christ, we all beginners. You got that? In light of eternity, we are all beginners. He who begun a good work. He's doing a good work. Whether you agree with it or not, he's doing a good work. You believe in Jesus, he's doing a good work. It's not a bad thing that we're sitting here together, going through this letter together. It's not a bad, this is not a bad thing. This is a great thing that we can sit here, read this letter and say, you know what? You know, one day I want to be the person that when I get on my knees and pray, the effectual, fervent presence of a righteous man avails much, that when I pray, I believe it. Elijah was a man like we were. Prayed for no rain, and it didn't rain three years and six months upon the land. You know, I, I want to be one of those people who say, look, I trust you, Lord, no matter what. I don't want to look at these 108 verses, 2,304 words and say, God didn't have them pen this stuff, you know, put the quail to the papyrus or to the page for nothing. It's for all of us sitting here. Can you count it all joy? And look, not if when you have that trial, remember those four words, count it all joy. So this is the enemy. No, Isaiah said, look, not if, you know what Isaiah said? When the enemy comes in like a flood. I wish he would have said if the enemy comes in a flood, but he didn't. He says, when the enemy comes in like a flood. When? And we should say, praise the Lord. Bring it on. I'm going to bear under it. It's producing something. It's producing spiritual endurance. Endurance. You know, these kids one day, I seen these little kids playing with rubber bands one day. And they was just stretching them. One had one, he said, look at this. The other one said, oh, that ain't nothing. Stretches like, look at this one. And then the other one had this huge rubber band. He said, he had a bigger rubber band and he stretched it and he said, boom, it popped. The little small ones, even though they were stretched, they didn't break. So don't look at some people like they spiritual giants. It's, oh, they, no, no, no. They give you that small little rubber band, but you ain't popping. You're being stretched, God is challenging you. Amen. Tis so sweet.